1: I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset from WBEZ Chicago. Here's something I'm willing to bet. Very few of us have fond memories of our high school sex ed classes. And that can be especially true for LGBTQ people. They rarely see themselves represented in lessons about reproductive and sexual health. Well, a local school came under fire last week for LGBTQ inclusive programming. A right wing group posted a video of the dean at Francis Parker talking about an optional LGBTQ sex ed class. The video attracted hateful and anti-LGBTQ language, but advocates aren't giving up. Here to discuss is Stephanie Scora, the Chief Operating Officer for Brave Space Alliance. Also with us is Luke Romsberg, Director of the Youth Housing Program at Center on Halsted. Stephanie, we mentioned Francis Parker at the top. Uh, The high school has tightened security, but it defends its decision to provide optional programming on queer sexual health. What's your reaction?
2: You know, I think we're in a scenario right now as LGBTQ people, especially when we talk about LGBTQ young people, where our community is so deeply under attack, our basic human dignity, our freedoms, our right to be who we are and be who we choose. Um, This is just an extension of the hate that we have been experiencing recently. And so while I was shocked and saddened to see it happen really in our backyard, Mm -hmm. um, I can't say that I was surprised.
0: What
3: about you,
2: Luke? Luke? Any thoughts?
3: I I agree. Um, Unfortunately, we are in unprecedented time right now. Um, I mean, this year alone, we have seen a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills put forth. And um, unfortunately, this just coincides with, with the rhetoric that is being put out right now.
1: So the main controversy here was that educators included sex toys in the lesson, right? I'm a parent of two high school students, two girls. And so I'll admit that the situation did get me thinking about like, well, how do I feel about that? What age should kids be learning about sex toys? Should mm-hmm. I be teaching about it at home? Like, What should I be doing? That, of course, was only one part of the programming that happened at, at Francis Parker. But what are your general thoughts, Luke, on appropriateness and age level when it comes to this discussion?
3: So it's important that we, you know, meet their meet your child where they are at. Um, You may find that once they hit a certain age that they're tiptoeing around these topics and... Um, you know, kind of testing the waters and what you're willing to discuss with them. Um, research varies. Uh you, you can find different instances where people will find specifically about sex toys that maybe around the age of fifteen, um, other people say much earlier than that. Uh so it's really it's really gauging um your child and their maturity level yeah. and um and where, where they're at and everything.
1: So how does LGBTQ affirming sex education differ from what many of us got when we were growing up, Luke?
3: So, I mean, I feel like LGBTQ um, youth are often left behind or, you know, totally ignored mm-hmm. uh, regarding sexual education. I myself am 31 years old. I can say that I never experienced that as as a youth. And um, by ignoring this population, by ignoring this community, you're you're essentially causing harm to them and showing that uh, sex for them is not something that's normal or something to be talked about. It's something that should be hidden.
1: Anything that you'd add, Stephanie?
2: yeah you know I think Luke is exactly correct where when we're talking specifically about the ways in which LGBTQ young people experience their own sexuality, not only are people you know, young people finding out about sex um at much earlier ages than we you know as as adults seem to think you know we i've I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon that when we grow up we forget about how early we knew things um yeah. and you know I I was a, a, a closeted youth, but an, as an LGBTQ person, I learned about all sorts of different kinds of sex when I was in high school and in middle school. And, you know, my friends were talking about sexuality in more abstract terms when I was in elementary school. And
1: you were learning this outside of the classroom.
2: Yeah. And I, Oh, yes, of course. I was learning it outside Among of your the friends. Classroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think really the biggest stride that we have made societally is acknowledging the fact that children are going to talk to themselves and each other about these topics. They need accurate, affirming and adequate sex education to make sure that they're getting the right information from sources that they trust, sources that know what they're talking about and sources that can give them basic information about what to do, what not to do and how to be safe and healthy with each other. And this is not just, you know, the you know, the the sex toy goes here, or this is how you turn it on. We're talking about topics ranging from you know the the nuts and bolts of how sex actually works to more important topics like consent and communication which children are often not ta- taught at a young age and it leads to opportunities for other folks to take advantage of them or for t- them to not have healthy relationships with each other yeah and most lgbtq affirming sex ed includes opportunities to talk about communication and consent which are topics that are not adequately taught to straight children
1: yeah Well, what is it that's so difficult about doing inclusive sex ed with young people, Stephanie?
2: And I think the biggest difficulty when you're talking about young people, especially folks who are under the age of 18, you run into all sorts of very important considerations about them being minors. You know The rights that their parents have, the rights that the, the other children in their schools have, the rights that the other children in their classes have. Um, and we come up against these very core moral quandaries about how we talk, frankly, about sex to young people, yeah. young people who may be having sex themselves, but are not of the age of consent. And so we have to be very careful when we have these conversations. And unfortunately, that sometimes stops the conversations from having, but it doesn't stop them from being sexual with each other.
1: Luke, how does it feel just to, to know that some young people are getting the option to have LGBTQ affirming sex ed?
3: I mean, I, I think it's wonderful, and it's it's great that this is starting to happen. Maybe somewhat more than what it happened in the past, but if you look at the numbers, it's uh, we have quite a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's by no means even close to the majority of youth getting uh, this experience in their sex ed- ed- education. And um, again, there's increasing evidence also to show that. Uh, positive discussions of of queer people um, helps to build a safer environment for them, and mm-hmm. that promotes uh, better grades. You know, feeling more comfortable in, in oneself, um, and it just shows overall higher success rates uh, for, for for queer youth whenever they feel comfortable in a space and they can be themselves.
1: We've been talking about schools, Luke, but you you work with the youth housing program. Talk to us about what you do and and the kinds of services that you provide.
3: Sure. Um, So yes, I I run a program for, I will say these are 18 to 24-year-old youth, um, but uh, all all the youth come to us unhoused, and we understand that each youth entering our program enters at a different level of understanding, a different level of education, a different level of self-acceptance. So it's important that these are regular discussions that we're having with every youth in the program, and also making sure that they are aware of what resources exist for them. So if they, for some reason, we can't provide the education, we can find somebody who can, or connect them, you know, with a different health provider that, that can answer more specific questions than, than we could handle. But we do our best to at least provide a basis of, of knowledge on sexual education and safe practices for them.
1: Yeah, help us make that connection between housing and sex ed.
3: Sure. So yeah, as I said, everybody enters at a different level, and um, sexual education is so so important because often whenever you come into uh, a program and you've been unhoused, you're you're not aware, like I said, of, of your resources, right? And it's it's very important that we are able to to explain those fully and uh, allow for that education to develop.
1: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in. We are discussing inclusive sex ed with Luke Romsberg, who's a director of the Youth Housing Program at the Center on Halsted, and Stephanie Scorer from Brave Space Alliance. So as the resident policy expert at Brave Space, Stephanie, I want you to tell us, is there any legislation that's around right now uh, talking about Illinois schools and what they have to teach in sex ed classes and maybe what they aren't allowed to teach?
2: Yeah, you know, there uh, recently were some changes to Illinois state law around this. I believe we do have, uh, we have a law mandating LGBTQ um, topics be taught in public school curriculums. And I believe we also have a sex ed law as well. Um, But the difficulty with those laws is really standardization and enforcement. Um, And especially when you're talking about this specific scenario with Francis Parker, this is a private school. um, And there are some requirements that private schools And all schools have to meet across the board. Um, But it's much more complicated to talk about what's happening in private schools as it relates to the law. You know, in, in this instance, we see a private school that's sort of going above and beyond. Uh, what they're actually legally required to provide.
1: Is it more stringent when it comes to public schools?
2: It, it's more enforceable when it comes to public schools because public schools are more directly tied towards state funding. And, you know, while we have some interaction between state funding and private school systems, especially in Chicago, you know, when we're talking about charter schools, Yeah. Um, for a public school, these are the laws of the state of Illinois. You are a government run school. You have to follow the law, whereas uh, private schools have a little bit more latitude on what they do and do not have to teach. Um, And Francis Parker seems to, as I said, have gone really above and beyond in providing affirming and accurate information to the youth that go to that school. Um, But it also means that, you know, the youth that uh, had access to that course uh, might be getting better sex ed than some folks in CPS who, uh, you know, they're required to teach these, uh, you know, they're required to have sex ed. They're required to have LGBTQ aspects to their curriculum. But... Public schools, as we know, are also incredibly under-resourced, especially when we're talking about Chicago public schools. Not every school is created the same. Not every school district is created the same. And we really get into a scenario where we have these wonderful laws in the state of Illinois when we talk about what we're supposed to mandate in our curriculum for public schools. And we have a lot of good things that young people are required to learn about in their schools that they need to know but the next question that we have to ask is, OK, well, does the school have the resources to provide this education, even if they're required to provide it? Right. Does each individual school have the resources to make that curriculum happen? And often the answer to that question is no.
1: Yeah. How does legislation impact your work,
3: Luke? So it's, I mean, important to realize that. In, in Illinois, we are essentially a safe space uh, regarding sex education, and I think I want to expand this question a little bit outwardly and just talk about how uh, – youth, you know, in other states wouldn't benefit from from this because mm. of how different, you know, how how different it is and how much I think that they are ignored. So mm. while we do have a lot to go, a lot of progress to make here in Illinois, I think we are on the right track. But it's important that we we view this as a national, um a national issue because mm. our, our our youth are impacted in various ways throughout the nation. And just it's it's great that we are making progress here. But uh, we can't forget about everybody else. Yeah,
1: I mean, there are numerous efforts by lawmakers across the country to you know, protect the rights of LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. especially this mm-hmm. year. But there are even more efforts to strip those rights yes. away, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you hear, Stephanie, from the communities that you serve at Brave Space? Like, what impact does this, the, the current cultural backlash have on them?
2: You know, I think folks are they're scared um and they're concerned about what's going to happen to them you know in chicago and in illinois more generally we are very lucky to live in one of the most progressive places in this country for lgbtq rights for trans people uh for legal protections and rights that we are afforded under the law uh but you know members of our community don't just stay in this city they don't just you know stay within the borders of the state of illinois um I myself regularly travel to other states for work or for personal matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I cross the border, I lose a lot of my rights. Um, And so, you know, I do not enjoy the same protections, for example, in the state of Indiana that I do in the state of Illinois. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, in in Illinois, I am free to use the bathroom that aligns with my my identity. If I walked into a women's bathroom, you know, despite being a woman in the state of Indiana, uh, I could get arrested. And, you know, I don't have legal protections to the same degree in Indiana that I do in the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, our community is diverse. We're broad. We have loved ones everywhere. We ourselves go everywhere. And so, you know, people are scared that there's this backlash. But in particular, the people that we serve at Brave Space Alliance are predominantly trans people, are predominantly black and brown people. And you're talking about a community that is constantly under attack. You know, the, the laws and the resources that we have that protect the community that Brave Space Alliance serves do not protect us in all the ways that we need. You know, we need more resources, we need more protections, but really we need more resources to make sure that our communities have the basic things that they need to live a life of, you know, dignity and bravery. Yeah. And we don't have those resources. We have the laws, but we don't have, you know, the funds mm-hmm. and the access to back it up. Um, but, you know, going beyond that, what Luke is saying is exactly right, is th- this is... We have a national community, especially when we're talking about Chicago. We are a regional and a national hub for LGBTQ culture. And so we see people every day at Brave Space Alliance who are not from Chicago. They're in Chicago, but they may come from Wisconsin. They may come from Indiana. They may come from Alabama. Yeah. And folks in those areas, in those states that have fewer legal protections, that have fewer or no resources uh, dedicated to LGBTQ people or, in fact, resources dedicated to taking our rights and uh, and safeties away. Yeah. They need that much more.
1: So, Luke, how can parents and and caregivers adjust the conversations that they're having at home to be more inclusive?
3: So the first step is making sure that that you are knowledgeable and comfortable about Mm. these topics because um, I think it's impossible to go to your children and talk to them without having a sufficient understanding yourself. So it's important that you do the research. And if you can't do that or feel uncomfortable, then you need to find others who can help you with that process. Um, that's That's where agencies like Center on Halstead come into play. Um, as as we said, I'm part of the youth housing program, but we do have a youth and family services program that offers multiple different types of, of programming throughout the week for for youth, um, and high, high school aged youth. For example, um, on Tuesdays, we have a, a Bi slash pan group that youth can come and learn about sexual education and also okay. connect with one another. And on uh, Thursdays, we have a Trans and gender nonconforming group where youth can come and connect with one another. So, uh, again, it's if, if, if you can't do it yourself or for some reason you're not comfortable, you need to either get comfortable or find those who are comfortable and mm-hmm. then they can provide the education for your youth.
1: And Stephanie, you've mentioned this a few times in the conversation, the word consent. Mm-hmm. How does good sexual education
2: address consent? Any sex ed should address consent. You know, you cannot have sex without consent. Um, if you're having sex without consent, that's not sex. That's sexual assault. Uh, and so consent is the bedrock of any good, comprehensive sexual education curriculum. And we see all sorts of research over the last five, ten years that demonstrates that young people that young people are not adequately being taught about what consent means what consent looks like, how they can exercise their own rights and be safe in their sexual encounters, how they can insist upon having affirmative and enthusiastic consent in their relationships, whether that relationship is long term or whether it's you know casual or a one time thing. Yeah. Uh, and so when we have youth sex ed in particular, this is an opportunity for us to teach young people about the fact that they need to be having sex that they feel good about. That they're agreeing to, that they're okay with everything that's happening to them and with them, with their partner or partners, um, and you know, in my opinion, you know, you really cannot have sex education unless you're talking about the the first thing that has to come in any sexual encounter, which is consent, yes. affirmative and enthusiastic consent, especially.
1: 100%. So, at an individual level, and I want to hear from you both on this: Is there anything that we can do to help support the work that groups like yours? are doing? You first, Stephanie.
2: Uh, you know, I think that's a really good question, and the best answer is we need people. We need resources. Illinois, in particular, is, as I've said, a haven for LGBTQ people, and especially trans people around this country. We see and have seen throughout this year, in the last several years, our community come under vicious and brutal attack again and again and again, inside Illinois, but especially outside of this state. There are people in Texas, Arkansas, Florida, all around the country who are literally fleeing their homes to come to places like Illinois and like Chicago. Yeah. Because they know that here they can live affirming lives. They can live dignified lives and that they'll be protected here under the law. The problem is. The wonderful agencies that we have in our state and in our city do not have the resources that we need to serve the people that already live here we're going to be facing an influx of political refugees who need our services more than ever and we need everybody possible to stand up and speak up and act in support whether that's by volunteering mm-hmm. telling your friends opening your wallets whatever you can do we need your support because we are going to need to serve All of these people, every single one of these folks is going to be coming to our state and our city with needs for housing, mental health care, basic physical health care, support groups, dignified and affirming communities that they can find themselves and see themselves in. Uh, And we need more resources and more support to do that. And unfortunately, although uh, our state and our city and our county have passed wonderful laws protecting our community and we're taking off bottom of the list items right now. Uh, In terms of LGBTQ rights and protections in the state of Illinois, the funds and the resources to back up those policies have not been there. Exactly. So we need folks to step up and help us close that gap while we pressure our elected officials to literally put their money where their mouth is.
1: Yeah. Luke, anything to add there? What else can individuals do?
3: I mean, just to echo, I mean, it resources and funding is the number one that we we need more people who are able to do the work and, and in order to ensure that we need more resources and funding um on a more basic level uh, you know, it's important to be be visible and be a supportive ally to LGBTQ students, um, especially as an adult. It's so important that they see that. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure that you're promoting uh, access to, to comprehensive sexual education um, within within your school or your school district. Um, support. You want to support uh, local or er, school uh, based, you know, gay straight alliances, things yeah. like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And um, that's you know and just overall work to help implement comprehensive and lgbtq inclusive policies.
2: Yeah,
1: we'll leave it there. That's Luke Romesberg from Center on Halsted and Stephanie Score from Brave Space Alliance. Thank you both. Thanks for
2: having us. Thank you.
1: Talking about sex can be difficult or impossible for some people. So how can we help students tackle tough topics like consent and sexual harassment? Margaret Hunsicker thinks improv can be a part of the solution. She's a teaching artist who worked with middle schoolers on sex ed for years. Margaret, tell us about the work that you've done with Creative Action.
4: Uh, So Creative Action is an arts education company uh, that services Central Texas and Austin, uh, we have several programs centered around social justice, arts education, and we have an interactive performance portion of the uh, of the nonprofit that goes to different schools, teaching allyship and uh, how to stand up and be a courageous bystander.
1: And you essentially you led this middle school program that mm-hmm. was about sexual harassment and consent, and you went to sixth grade classrooms in Austin. Yes, tell us about that.
4: Yeah. Uh, so the program was called Crossing the Line, and essentially we would show the kids uh, a, a play, sort of a one act, of uh, that centered around uh, this girl, Jessica, who was being sexually harassed. Uh, the kids, you know, that were doing it didn't really know what they were doing. They were just, you know, following trends or playing around as they thought and then we allowed the kids to actually go back and do that sort of replay and tell the actors what they thought they should do, what the actors should have done in that situation. And we even had some uh, times when the kids get to get up there and talk to the characters themselves.
1: really and so <laughs> and the kids were enthused to be part of this. And oh yeah to engage and yeah
4: <laughs> yeah yeah they were pretty excited
1: improv, I mean, I've tried it before. It's a very unique art. I loved it every every time I've done it. I was so intrigued to find out that you were using it in this way. Um, It is based, though, on on reading people's energy, right? And and to respond in the moment. Yes. How do you think that improv is uniquely positioned to do this kind of work?
4: Absolutely. So it's that real-time reaction. It's accepting entirely what the other person is giving you, uh, as far as the reality they're creating, and then reacting authentically to it. So one of the ways that improv was super helpful is anytime the the students were talking to, say me, as a performer playing Jessica, a girl who was bullied, a girl who was uh, cyberbullied online and even uh, sexually assault well sexually harassed in person. Um, you know, if they're being disingenuous, they're gonna see that. Uh, They're going to see that in my reactions, you know, just sort of opening myself emotionally was the way to, you know, show them exactly, you know, what was going on in in my heart of hearts. Yeah. So
1: help us understand what it looks like. How do you Uh practice consent with an improv game?
4: Great. So we've got tons of improv games. There's, I'm, I'm sure when you <laughs> played improv, oh, yes. <laughs> all kinds of when games. When I learned my
1: yes and. <laughs>
4: yes, absolutely. So one of the games we started with, obviously this is all scaffolded, right? We start off with the very basics where we would stand in a circle and a student would have to ask consent to switch spots with another student. And we just practice that. All you say is yes, yes. Yes. And so the students would practice just physically taking the spot of another one. And then as we go along through the week, through the program, the students would get a chance to uh, practice that consent. Like, can I take a selfie with you? Yes or no. Can I give you a hug? Yes or no. Uh, And just sort of see that on stage. Very interesting. Mm How did you guys come up with that Uh, and make that link? Yeah. I mean, uh, interactive performance uh, has been around forever. Um, I think theater action project started in 1999, and crossing the line, the middle school programs was one of the first ones. It, uh, it started off very 90s where people were wearing different shirts that said <laughs> different things on them, different yeah. cargo pants. Um, overalls,
1: maybe. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, and when uh, my team started revamping it, uh, we really focused on what kids were telling us. Was happening to them at school. I see. And what they were dealing with.
1: Why do you think that uh, the students were so enthused, as you said earlier, and so open and, and responded in this way to, to partake in these practices?
4: Yeah, exactly that. I think, you know, from listening to them, we learned how much of the interaction was happening online, how much of their social life was happening through apps. And just sort of the the ways they would talk to each other in the hallway, the things they would deal with. We just asked them. We asked a lot of kids and sort of went from there.
1: How do you think moving around physically Mm -hmm. in the space helped make that lesson sink in for them?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I also want to reiterate that, you know, we never were in a position where the kids were touching anybody. Um, It was all me and my best friend, you know, uh, who was the person who played the actor sexually harassing me. So we had that really, really intense sense of trust. Uh, So the kids moving around in the space, that's a game to show, you know, if you're going to somewhere else, do you have permission? Just literally, do I have permission to move in this way? And for myself and the other actors, it was, okay, do they have permission to touch each other? We can see as one of them moves closer to the other, how they're uh, reacting to that, how uncomfortable Jessica looks, how Jessica's frozen in place. Uh, so they could see sort of the way that a proximity affects someone's feelings.
1: Yeah. And I think it was a good idea to be doing this alongside your a friend of yours, oh, right? As yes. you said, yeah. that sense of trust would have to be there to, to demonstrate something like this. Definitely. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we are talking about ways to make sexual health education approachable and engaging for young people. And we're talking with Margaret Hunsicker, who's a teaching artist who used improv to start conversations with middle schoolers about consent and sexual harassment. So what percentage of students, Margaret, would you say afterwards came forward with stories?
4: Yeah, I would say maybe around 5%. Okay. Yeah, And, and I don't think they were... Usually, comfortable talking in front of the class. It would be uh, maybe after one of our lessons where we had defined sexual harassment. And uh, we would get stories ranging from, Hey, uh, I think this might be happening to a friend of mine. What should I do? And, you know, we would be able to direct them to the adults in the school that were, Mm -hmm. you know, really equipped to handle all of those things. But they also had the option. Um, one of our last days was, well, what do you do if you see that happening in person, our last days of the program? And how can you be an ally and you know stand up for someone? Yeah. It's not always going up to the sexual harasser and saying, hey, quit that. It's not always doing that. That's not always the safest option. And yeah. that's not always the option that uh, leaves the target of feeling the most supported either. It's really all about checking in with someone saying, hey, I, I saw that. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not okay. Can I can I help you? Are you okay? Just checking in with the person uh, that was targeted.
1: Yeah, I think it's great that they felt so comfortable to share yeah. with you and 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 your your partner on stage. Um, I just remember being in elementary and middle school, and you know, outside groups coming in to perform or to mm-hmm. you know to to do workshops, host right. workshops, or whatever. I don't know that I would have been the kid to like <laughs> as, yeah. as social yeah, yeah, yeah. and talkative as I was. I don't know if I'd be the one to you know be sharing that. So that, that's great that we've come to a place where kids felt comfortable to express yeah. in that way.
4: Absolutely, I think uh, you know just going back to the social because this can be element. uncomfortable to talk about. Oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, even as an adult,
4: <laughs> I mean, still to this day, I'm like <laughs> a little uncomfortable with yeah. it.
1: Yeah. So. What would you say to people who think that middle schoolers shouldn't be engaged in these topics at all? That this is just too much?
4: Uh, too bad. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, you can want them to not be exposed to this. But unfortunately, if they know another human being, you know, they they're already talking about it. They're already, you know, sending photos online. They're already... Talking to each other in the hallways. They're already sometimes, you know, sexually harassing each other without knowing or even while knowing what they're doing is wrong. So I think it's important to get ahead of it and teach consent at the very top and make sure the students know when something is not okay and they don't have to put up with it.
1: Yeah, I'm still, though I obviously went through middle school myself, (laughs) um, but I have high schoolers now, my my daughters, and I'm still amazed. First of all, I'm I'm thankful that I have the relationship I do with them where they come home and they tell me the stories. Yeah. And I'm like, my eyes open wide and I'm like, really? Yeah. That's what's happening? Mm -hmm. As though I didn't go through the same thing, right? (laughs) But I I don't know, some of the stuff just seems even more advanced
4: now, right? Yeah.
1: I wonder the response you're getting from from parents when you were doing this and and from the teachers at the schools.
4: Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, because there was that level between us and the parents, we mostly talked to teachers and uh, other staff at the school. Okay, You know, they they would notice, you know, a lot more kids just uh, talking about it. Um, They would use, you know, uh, the verbiage from the show. Um, you know, sometimes would be a little bit tongue-in-cheek or joking around like, hey, you didn't have my consent to take my pencil or something like that. But, you know, that's middle school. Sounds like
1: middle schoolers yeah. for sure.
4: <laughs> um, so, so now uh,
1: they've learned a word, consent, and they're going to mm-hmm. use it for everything. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> but at least they've got the concept. And if something is a lot more serious than someone stealing their pencil, then they have a sense of, oh, this is something I should reach out to someone about. This is something I should get away from.
1: Yeah. What was the most rewarding part of it for you, that experience?
4: I, we never asked the kids to write letters or anything, but I still, I still got them. Um, Really? Yeah, letters to me, the actor, letters to my character, Jessica, and just the way the kids, you know, when it's just them on pen and paper and no one else is going to look at it, the way they really opened up and felt Wow, yeah, just grateful, and also how much they saw themselves in the play, and how much they i mean they seemed pretty appreciative it was they wrote letters
1: to the character, too, yeah, to Jessica,
4: yeah, yeah, they it was just adorable the way they were like, "Hey, Jessica, same thing happened to me. I'm so glad that you got through it. Don't let anybody get you down." Um, I'm here for you. Oh my goodness. And I know. I still have those letters and I honestly I'm about to tear up right now. <laughs> They're so good. <laughs> that is
1: so powerful. So th- mm-hmm. this kind of education, improv. Yeah. Sounds like it had a profound impact on on the way that the students were able to communicate and uh, about sex. Yeah. About sexual harassment, really tough topics otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Margaret Hunsiger is a teaching artist. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Sarah Stark and Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll see you tomorrow.